0: For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. Welcome to How to Money. I'm Joel. And I am Matt. And today we're discussing how to not mess up your taxes with Keith Schroeder.
1: Hey, Joel, guess what, man? Everybody has to file their taxes. So this is going to be a really valuable episode, and I'm excited to dive into this one. We're talking with Keith Schroeder, and he has a varied history of working hard. He grew up in the backwoods of Wisconsin on a family farm, fixing silo and loaders. We've all been there. Yeah. (laughs) But his passionate distaste for that work, that led him to file tax returns on the side. And that part-time work led Keith to be able to retire at age 22. So you know, we're definitely going to be talking more about that. And his tax preparation business exploded into a full-on accounting firm, where at his busiest, he was serving over 2,000 clients. He started his own blog in 2016 called The Wealthy Accountant to inspire folks to to live their life well and also help them not screw up their taxes. (laughs) So Keith, thanks so much for uh, joining us on the show today.
2: I'm glad to be here.
1: Keith, we're so glad to have you.
0: And every episode, Matt and I drink a craft beer on the show. It's something that we're super into. Today on the show, we're drinking a beer called Wild Leap alpha abstraction volume nine and so we have to ask you there's seriously there are nine volumes of this. yeah it sounds like a very technical beer Yeah, yeah uh so keith we drink a beer to remind us of what's important to us while at the same time we're trying to save well for the future what's your craft beer equivalent what do you like to splurge on
2: well, I was going to tell you guys I got myself a case of Schlitz and I was on the last game, <laughs> but I, I didn't think that would be appropriate. Uh, so I guess I have two—I have two vices. But the real truth is, is that there's two things I like to spend money on that some people don't feel is frugal or they might consider frivolous. And the first one is going to be. Books, and I think if people read my blog, they realize pretty quickly I'm pretty voracious at the reading. I like owning the books, holding it in my hand. I like marking them up, and and I know you can get Kindle, and you can you can you can mark things up that way as well too. I certainly use the library. I wrote a blog post, uh, you know, called uh, "Library Millionaire" a couple of years nice. back. <laughs> so I I think that that books are something I spend probably three thousand dollars a year, maybe on books. Wow. something of that nature the other frivolous thing that I have is while I don't spend a lot of money on things like cars things like that so i I buy cars that are a little bit older or a bank repo and then I run them forever I, I don't skimp on my house so I got a pretty nice home i it's an old farmhouse that's been remodeled but I got a hot tub in it and a jacuzzi and <laughs> you know steam room so I, I mean I'm, You're I'm talking I, know, language. Well, I'm <laughs> yeah I, I'm frugal but not that frugal
1: I will say, man, a hot tub for those Wisconsin winters, though, that sounds pretty nice. Oh, my gosh. Well, Keith, we're going to go ahead and dive into your story some. So first, like what did growing up on a farm in a small town, what did that teach you?
2: Well, you know, the world is a little bit different in rural communities, Sometimes you'll see bloggers out there or even on podcasts and they'll say, well, you know, we have this frugality. And I keep on thinking to myself, what people say today is frugal does not even compare to some of the things that I hear even today. And I'll give you an example. Uh, About three months ago, I'm at church and one of the people I know is a little bit older than me. And he comes over and he says, yeah, you know. Uh, you know life is pretty good and he's been you know talking about being frugal and I'm saying yeah I do this blog and all this and he goes yeah you know my father-in-law he he used to always teach us that too he said you 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 get a dollar you save 50% of that and, and you try to save a little bit more but you got to save at least 50% these guys were so frugal that there's just you know any anything anybody does is just so frivolous compared to the, this mindset of frugality to almost the point of Pain, painful suffering. But the, here's the thing that I also learned that I think a couple of things that I learned from my grandparents. My grandmother used to always say to us, and we would joke back as well, she'd say to us things about the Great Depression, which they grew up in. She would say things like, you know, during the Great Depression, we would have one egg per week, and our family was farmers, and the man in the house got that because he needed the energy. We sold all the rest of the eggs because we needed to have the money to pay, you know, keep the farm. And she said, you know, back then we ate large sandwiches, and you liked it. And my (laughs) uncle, Kevin, myself, we would laugh a little bit and say, yeah, but today we got butter-flavored Crisco. So it was was funny (laughs) on one hand, but she was dead serious. One of the things I repeat in the blog, and... It's one of the most, I think the most important lesson I've ever learned about money is from my grandfather, which has passed away many years ago now. He always had a phrase, he said, never take off of the pile. And what he meant by that is don't kill the goose that lays the golden egg. And the goose is, is the corpus of your money. So if you, you get some money and you, you're frugal, you save some money, you put it aside and you invest it. You can spend the dividends, you can spend the interest, but you cannot dip into that original money. I've always been very cautious about dipping into it, especially if it was for any kind of personal consumption. Now, the difference today that I would look at is that there would be reasons I would consider taking from the stack. And some of those would be if there was a medical issue with a family member or myself, it is the ethical thing to do that most people might consider it inappropriate. So the same thing happens with finances. If you have you save some money, I'm fine with people spending their dividends and interest, but if you dig into that corpus, into this digging off the pile so to speak, then next month there's going to be less interest and less dividends because you've diminished you diminished the goose that lays the golden egg. That's that's what I think is probably a, an important lesson that if I can get everybody to get that. You can never run out.
0: Build it up. Don't touch that, and uh, and live off the rest. That that money is essentially churning out for you, right?
2: You know, whatever whatever phrase or whatever story works for you that that gets you committed to this will serve the best. Now, that doesn't mean that you would never touch it. So, for example, if you're saving and putting together a nest egg so you can put a down payment on a house, well, that makes a lot of sense. Buying a car, I mean, you're going to save to build up for that. Well, the problem that sometimes people have. Is they'll say things like, well, if I can never take off the stack, then I got to borrow money. Well, I'm not a big fan of that either. And I actually, I I listened to your podcast where you guys talked about, you know, when is it the right time to have debt and when when does it make sense? And I agreed with what, what you guys had come up with. I think it was, you know, very present that People would save for things. You know, you didn't want to have things like payday loans, which you thought was the worst debt, and I would agree. And then car loans, I would also caution against that. I mean, and, and I understand. I think you guys used a, an example where you got a 0% financing and it made sense, and and I'm okay with that, too. Um, but I see too many people with bad debt. so. Yeah. Taking off the stack is okay because some some stacks are meant to be taken off of. Because if you never take off the stack, how are you going to save enough money to buy a house cash without taking off the stack? But uh, I think I think people understand what I mean.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, hey, uh, Keith, so how did you get started, by the way, keeping the books at your dad's business, going back to kind of your history and how you got to where you are? Like, were you
2: always into numbers growing up? not that I knew of. Here's here's the true story of what happened. I grew up on a farm, and I, and I really believed that's what I was going to do for a living. Here it is, 1982. It's June. I graduated from high school, and at November of that year, the family farm went through a bankruptcy. That was the end of farming. What I thought I was going to do for a living was no longer going to happen, so I worked for my dad. So I'm turning a wrench and doing that kind of stuff, and my dad hated payroll, bookkeeping, accounting, everything. So <laughs> here you go, son. And I started doing that and then, you know, and it was okay with be beat going outside in the wintertime and, and, and freezing my tail. So hmm. yes, I would do some service work, but boy, if I could stay in, you know, if it's middle of January and I could sit in and do some bookkeeping and you know, that, that was just, that was just absolutely beautiful.
1: I guess the timing of that works out pretty well you know like January 1st rolls around it's really cold outside time to start working on the taxes
2: <laughs> well and the other thing the, the thing is then is I wasn't even doing taxes that much then so what I was doing is I do my own and you know here it is I'm 18 19 20 years old I didn't know what the heck I was gonna do with my life I mean I'm a kid at the time I, you know hard to know what the heck I'm gonna do when I'm in my mid 50s and so I, I was 18 19 20 years old I'm working for my dad's company and uh, some of the other employees were like hey would you do my taxes Taxes. And I'm like, well, yeah, you know, you know, slide me 20 bucks or 50 bucks. And I understand 50 bucks was a lot of money in 1983 and 84
1: and 85. Well, Keith, you, you know, you've written about how you retired at age 22, right? Like how, how in the world did that actually happen? You mentioned some of the folks there kind of in your, you know, in your local town saving 50 cents of every dollar that they make. I'm going to guess it has something to do with you know you having a, a high savings rate, right?
2: Yeah, I live out in the country at the, t- at the time, so I'm in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing to spend money on. And <laughs> what I had done is growing up on a farm, I made a little money. I didn't when I, when I graduated from high school, I had a couple thousand dollars to my name. Uh, I technically wasn't broke. I mean, that was the, the, my, my grandparents and my, my dad. And and that was bad. I was a little more fortunate. I had something. But when I was in high school, I I belonged to what was called the FFA, or Future Farmers of America. Every year, they had these sales. One year, they they were selling light bulbs, and then in the spring, they'd sell seeds. And my freshman year of high school, I I said, okay, I'm in the FFA. I'll sell light bulbs. And this was back in the days when you had incandescent, so everybody needed a lot of light bulbs. And I broke every record by multitudes of order of number of light bulbs sold that first year. And and then I was selling the seeds and I was doing that. Well, the school loved the idea. They wanted me to sell more. And I was thinking, no, 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 guys, Do you understand. I found this other company called uh, Specialty Merchandising Corporation, which is still around, but it's not the same as it was back then. And they imported all this stuff that they had in this catalog and you could buy it at wholesale. And I would buy certain items that I thought I could resell. And I would either put it in retail stores or I'd get them where they, what do you call consignment like type things. So I started doing that and I started making a little bit of money and that helped out. Then I would do some taxes. You got to also remember that I had luck and timing. People don't realize the history of this and, and, and you can look this up. In mid-August of 1982, the year I graduated, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was around 782. Now, we've had had multiple times where the Dow Jones has moved more than that in a day. Back then, though, in mid-August of 1982, interest rates were like 15%. The economy was coming out of a double-dip recession. I mean, things weren't really good. It was even worse than the Rust Belt. But now, Uh, Paul Volcker, the Fed chairman at the time, said, okay, inflation is starting to come down. We're going to lower interest rates a little bit. And the stock market, the Dow Jones, went up 30 points for three days in a row, three straight days, so 90 points. So you saw the market go up 12% in three days. And that was the beginning of the five-year run, which was absolutely the best run in market history up to that time that went all the way to 1987 when it collapsed, for a day and a half. So my, my early money really worked very well for me. <clears throat> now keep in mind, when I say I retired at 22, it, it, part of it was, because I didn't wanna work for my dad i 'm doing a little bit of taxes on the side. I own my own home, and when I say that, I say it tongue in cheek because I it was a mobile home, but it was a home, darn it and hey, I owned the thing it yeah, that thing counts <laughs> it still counts and and I was just sitting around reading all day and there's a there's a cafe down the road from the mobile home park, and i 'd get coffee and have you know dinner or something, and chat with all the farmers and I was living the good life and, and I had a couple hundred thousand dollars. I was retired, but I knew in the back of my mind this wasn't going to last me the rest of my life. I knew the market wasn't going to go straight up forever, and uh, I was taking some college classes. I had taken some accounting and business and economics and that sort of thing, and you know, taking a couple classes here and there, and enjoying that. And then I met a lovely young lady that married the heck out of me. So. Which is, which is kind of funny because you know, I, I did meet her you know, uh, in a unique way and we met and a year later we got married. Well, when we went through the process of getting married, you meet the minister and the minister was like, well, what do you do? And I'm like, well, I read books all day. Well, what, what, what do you do? And he goes, well, we need a janitor. And I said, "Well," and I thought, "Okay, I'm I'm getting married. I should be a good husband. I should probably have a job." And this two hundred thousand dollars ain't gonna last forever. Most likely, there's there's real risk with this. Two hundred thousand is a lot of money in nineteen eighty seven. So I met my wife in eighty seven. The market crashed, and I married her in eighty eight. One year and six days later, so I I said, "Okay, I'll be a janitor," and I did that for like 14 months. And I realized really quickly it was only 14 months of my life I worked for someone else. And boy, did I learn quickly! I didn't like that. I wanted control of my life. I wanted to do. I wanted to experiment with my ideas because I'm just always brimming with that. January 30th, I quit and went full time into taxes for the 89 tax season. And it was kind of timely because my dad had an employee that uh, he had picked up that was a farmer and he hadn't filed for like 15 years. So it was the only time in my career I had to do 1970s tax returns. But, you know, it's great to start your tax season or t- start your tax career as an accountant with uh, a really nice client that's going to pay you good. So I, I started doing that and I ended up getting only I had like 48 clients the first year, which was really bad because I had like $3,000 of income. The next year, I did about 145 to 150 returns, but I was reinvesting everything in, so I was still losing a little bit of money. The third year, I ended up doing around 450 returns, so I was tripling pretty quickly. I went from a bedroom in the house, remodeled my basement, and that third year, basically, I was reinvesting everything, but I had broken even. So, those first three years were the only three years of my career where, in taxes where I was really losing money. By 95, I ended up buying the office I'm in now, which is a storefront, and then I just from 95 to 2000, I was on, I did a couple thousand returns, 15, 20 employees. Drove me nuts and wore me out, and I intentionally cut back. And and, and of course, I, and the, sto- and the story goes on in my blog, and I, I throw out bits and pieces all the time. It's nice to have a career like I'm doing, and you can say, I don't want to do so much now, and, and, and it, it, you know, it's not always good for clients, but I can always cut back and then I can always add more later. It, there's, I've always tried different things and it's been difficult sometimes to find that correct mix of the right amount of clients to the things I want to do. But, you know, that that's the nice thing about being self-employed. You certainly can explore it and make the rules.
0: Yeah so Keith uh, you retired at 22 that's really cool and very abnormal
2: <laughs> and then I unretired a few years later
0: Right exactly and and so you've kind of had this really interesting career arc uh, if you can call it an arc it's more like ups and downs like peaks and valleys right you're just kind of all over the place which is cool like you have you've kind of given yourself that ability on the note of retirement contributing to a Roth or a traditional IRA like now let's kind of get into some some tax stuff Matt and I we usually talk about the Roth as being a better option for folks it's it's one of the and and those IRAs are one of the simplest steps you can take in saving for your own retirement right while also realizing those tax benefits these tax advantaged accounts so so which of these do you prefer
2: and why I'm gonna agree that the Roth IRA is the best way to go and if you, and, and, and my argument was HSA is the best because you get a tax deduction and it grows tax free. The Roth is next because it grows tax free and, and so on and so forth. Now, the issue that I have though is that I will shoot from the hip in any general setting saying Roth IRAs are always the best. However, that is not true. I think the Roth IRA is the best in 99.99% of the instances. The more time the money's in there, the better. But I can give an example of somebody, a client, and this is not a real client, but I can make a fake client up in a situation where I would advise against the Roth because it'd be a bad idea. And here's the client. Client comes in, he says, well, I'm working over at one of the uh, local mills and I'm making 300 grand a year as an executive, maybe more. And uh, next year I'm retiring December 31st. I have no retirement plan. They pay me a lot, but no retirement plan. Well, we're a bunch of guys. <clears throat> and uh, what do you think? And I'd say, and, and he'd say, should I do a Roth? And I'd say, absolutely not. Put it into a traditional retirement account. And he goes, why? I said, well, what's your income going to be next year? Well, nothing. Well, that's great. You're going to take $6,000 or so and put it into your traditional IRA. You're going to get a tax deduction at the top tax bracket of 37% now. And uh, next year when you take it out, you pay no tax. So I get the best of both worlds. It's even better than a Roth, but it's a unique situation. Now, 99.9999999% of all the people are not going to fall into one of those Loophole. So the Roth IRA, if, if, if you just believe Roth IRA is always better if it's allowed, I would I would agree with that. I would fill my Roth up first, and then I would go to my other traditional retirement account second.
1: Nice. Well, good, because that's what Joel and I feel. <laughs> we, we agree with you. We're going to talk some about like the tax implications of your side hustle. Whether you treat that as a small business or a hobby, that's definitely something you need to consider. So we're going to talk more about that right after the break.
0: Kachava is the all-in-one superfood shake made up of high-quality plant-based nutrients. It's got greens, superfruits, plant proteins, antioxidants, adaptogens, probiotics, and in other words, everything your body craves to feel your best. This is where Kachava really earns their fifty-two thousand plus five-star reviews. It tastes amazing. It's creamy and smooth with just water, and it comes in five delicious flavors you can choose from: chocolate, vanilla, chai, matcha, and coconut acai. Kachava is offering how to money listeners. 10% off for a limited time. I've been using cachava in breakfast smoothies in the morning recently. It's just so nice to pack in a bunch of nutrients early in the AM in a way that's satisfying and energizing. So if you want to optimize your breakfast, your workout shake, be sure to check out cachava. Just go to cachava.com slash howtomoney. That's spelled K A C H A V A, and get 10% off your first order. That's K A C H A V A dot com slash how to money. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week at the beach every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simon's on the calendar. Pump for that. But sometimes those vacations. Or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. And now a word from the show sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a
1: total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle.
0: Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. All right, we're back. We're talking with Keith Schroeder, who writes at The Wealthy Accountant. And we're talking about taxes and how not to screw your taxes up. All right, Keith, let's talk about side hustles. A lot of our listeners are making extra money on the side. So from a tax perspective, why does it make sense to consider a side hustle as a hobby and not as a small business.
2: So when you have a side hustle, the thing that you have to think about is what are the taxes are going to be on this side hustle. So you say, well, I'm going to do some Uber driving, or I'm going to do some little business or some dog walking. It doesn't have to be very big. If it is a self-employed type business, then you're going to pay income tax at ordinary rates and a self-employment tax at 15.3%. If you're a hobby... You don't pay the 15.3%. Now, that brings up an interesting topic. What's a hobby and what's not? People get it backwards. They come into my office and they sit down and they got this so-called business. They're doing Amway or something. And they're losing a gazillion dollars a year. They're doing race car driving losing you know 80000 a year. And they say, well, if I show a profit at least two or five years, then I can be a business. That is not what the rule says. The hobby rule is just the opposite. The hobby rule says that if you have a profit in three of any five years, you're not a hobby, even if you say you are. You might be doing it for fun, but you are now actually a business. So what you do, in reality, is this: uh, real client. Client had a business, didn't have a hobby where he made these really elegant candles. I mean, they were really something, and you know, these would sell for eight hundred dollars and up. And he would give them away as gifts and that. An kind of eight hundred dollar candle. Oh, these candles were huge, and they were just—they—they they had like these great big money he he and like shells. I mean, these were just incredible candles. Wow! Some of these candles went for you know for thousands of dollars. Holy mackerel! So these—that's a candle. <laughs> that these were candles. Now, of course, and and for obvious reasons, he wasn't selling too much of this. So one, you know, I, I met the guy and he came in, and he says, yeah, you know, I got this guy that he wants to buy a couple of these candles. He's gonna make a quick three, four grand. Well, his cost for wax and things like that isn't all that much, it's really just a lot of time. So when I sat down with him, I said, well, what are the odds you're gonna sell some more of these next year or the year after? He says, well, I've been doing it for a long time this is this is the first time I've done any real selling of them. <laughs> I said, you know, I think you're a hobby. And what I'm gonna mm-hmm. do is I'm gonna file a form telling the IRS, I'm gonna treat you as a hobby and if I don't actually make a profit three of the next five years, including the year we're doing, then the IRS will say, fine, you're a hobby. There's, there's no deduction under the current tax system uh, with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act for expenses. But you pay no 15.3% self-employment tax. But if you don't make a profit for three out of five years, then what they're going to do is they're going to say no problem. But if you do have three, you know, all of a sudden the guy does great and he sells more thousand dollar candles. Well, the good news is he has the money. The the bad news is he has to pay self employment tax. You end up going back and amending those returns. You pay the tax, but there is no penalty. So what you do is you avoid the penalty and you avoid the issue of uh, of the IRS knocking on your door saying no 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 you don't have a hobby anymore. You have a business and you should know better.
1: Gotcha. All right. So I've got an example for you. So say somebody is actually driving for Uber, they're taking it seriously and you know, let's let's say they're making between like twenty and thirty thousand dollars a year. For somebody in that situation, do they do they count that income as hobby income
2: or is that an actual small business? I wouldn't consider it hobby. Because now he's taking actions that are a little bit different. The guy that's making a couple thousand bucks, he's doing it for you know a little mad money on the side and he's playing around with it. Somebody's making 20, 30 grand. They're getting serious out there. Yeah. The other part of the equation for a hobby is how do you make a living? Maybe you're retired. Maybe you're doing another job. Maybe you have another business. I'm going to argue doing Uber on the side is one thing. Doing 30000 a profit a year on it, you're not doing a whole lot else. You're doing a lot of miles and doing a lot of hauling for people. So I would be hard-pressed, in my opinion, to call that a hobby.
0: So, Keith, it, when the time comes to count that revenue as actual business income, there are lots of different options for businesses and how they want to structure that business, right? So could you kind of quickly talk about the benefits of – being a sole proprietor, a partnership, an LLC or an S Corp, and then kind of how you decide as a business, as you're kind of growing, like how you should be incorporated.
2: Choosing a, an entity for your business, the default is gonna be when you start out, you're, if you're just one person, you're gonna be a sole proprietor. If there's more than one, then it's going to, you're gonna to default to a partnership. I have no problem with people being an LLC. An, an LLC for tax purposes, if you don't do anything, will be what's called a disregarded entity. It, what that means is for legal purposes you have an LLC, but when it comes to doing your taxes we act as if it does not exist. Now if your business is first starting out and there's no revenue and profits, then you certainly don't want to put the cart in front of the horse. Why build S-Corps and LLCs to be treated as S-Corps or C-Corporations because that's just spending a lot of money and it makes the accountant rich, but even I don't want the money because it's just busy working I'm busy mm. enough a good rule of thumb for, that I use in my office is when people start out I say you know you can get an LLC we'll do it as a sole prop the law allows me under the tax code to have a look back period so for example if you have an LLC I want to know when you start making money where you're gonna have a profit of at least thirty thousand see if your profits under thirty thousand dollars yes it's gonna be a sole proprietorship even if it's an LLC and I'm okay with that. The taxes are there, they get a little bit painful, but they're not real bad yet. Once it goes above thirty thousand dollars, I have some alternative choices, which now I have wiggle room where I can save some money. The nice thing about an LLC is I can make that election up to ninety days late. So I can say I can look back and say, you know what? I've been I started my business, I wasn't making money in January. I got to August, wasn't making money. In November, I cleared a big deal. I made a quick eighty grand. Wonderful. We're gonna quick uh, elect to treat your LLC as an S corporation. We'll do a split year if we want, or we can, you know, probably do a split year. So your your beginning of the year is gonna be on Schedule C, not much income, not much profits, you know, not much revenue. Then we got eighty thousand dollars. We're gonna take that uh, LLC elect to be treated as a corporation. Then we're gonna elect to be treated as an uh, S corporation. That's one there used to be two forms it's one step now you just file a 2553 and the IRS says you're golden. Then you have to pay yourself a reasonable compensation. That that's all over the map. We're going to argue in this case let's say he made it's $80,000 deal and let's say that reasonable compensation is $40,000 about half of it which is pretty common by the way. You know you know anywhere from 35 to 70 percent is where it usually falls though that's not always true so what does that mean well if he made $80,000 and it goes on schedule C he's gonna pay ordinary income tax he's gonna pay another 15.3% so um, $80,000 times 15.3% and that's $12,240. If he has an uh, an S election the way I would do it and, and, and good accountants will all agree with this is he's going to get a $40,000 paycheck, which is going to have FICA tax, same thing as self-employment tax. The other 40000 is going to flow through from that corporation on a K-1 to his personal return, subject to ordinary income tax, but not the 15.3% self-employment tax. So $40,000 times the 15.3%, he's going to save approximately $6,120. Now there's a few calculations in the tax return that will reduce that a little bit so let's just say for argument the guy's going to save 5,500 bucks he's going to drop another 500 bucks to get the tax return prepared that corp, and then maybe he pays another 500 for a payroll service so he's going to be 4,500 dollars ahead you know basically every year under that scenario hmm. the big question I always have for them is how consistent will this be so you made a quick 80, I'm happy with that, but there's some rules with this. If you're going to keep on making thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars 50000 a year or more, I'm happy with that, but you don't want to be showing a loss in an S corporation and paying yourself a wage because then the way I saved you money works in the reverse action, so we don't want to do that. You can unselect or terminate that S election anytime you want as an LLC. The catch is if you want to go back to the S Corp you have to wait at least five years which means you can't you can flop back and forth a little bit but it, first of all it gets messy and second of all you can not flop back and forth at your whim that easily the first the first one's a gimme okay you can choose what you want and then you can say oops i didn't want to do that i want to change my mind you can do that anytime you want but once you get to that point you can't say well i want to go back to what it was the grass was greener over there got to wait five years so a little bit of planning and a little bit of crystal ball involved in it as well
0: yeah keith well we covered some great stuff about business taxes but let's definitely get into kind of how people should think about filing their own personal taxes and kind of some of the specifics they need to know on that in in particular because of the way the tax code is structured currently and we'll get to some of those questions right after the break asking the right questions can greatly impact your future especially when it comes to your finances com slash how to money. That's spelled K A C H A V A. And get ten percent off your first order. That's K A C H A V A.com slash how to money. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together map for a week yeah, at the we beach do. every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simon's on the calendar. Pump for that. But sometimes those vacations or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb, you just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: Let's say you've been listening to the podcast and now you're finally ready to start implementing some of the, uh, the financial morsels that we're dishing up. Maybe you are trying to save up some more money for a down payment on a house, or maybe there's a big vacation that you have been dying to take. Well, the money app, For your extended 30-day free trial, go to monarchmoney.com slash money for an extended 30-day free trial. All right, Joel, we're back from the break. and We're talking with Keith Schroeder about taxes. Keith, we've been talking about business taxes, and let's kind of dive into personal taxes now. I've got a quick question for you regarding filing status. So obviously, single individuals, they're going to file an individual return. But how can married couples make the best decision for the filing status that they choose? Are there some considerations that they need to keep in mind?
2: Under the current tax code, including with most states, I do not see many people benefiting from doing a married filing separate uh, situation. Mostly, and one of the areas where it would come up for filing separately would be because of Schedule A. I mean, if you had disproportionate incomes based upon certain expenses...
0: You mentioned the the tax law change in 2017, which definitely it changed things up in, in a lot of ways, and it changed the way that we file our taxes and the way that we think about how how we get the best bang for our buck, right, and how we can pay the least amount of taxes as legally possible. And so now, a vast majority of Americans are better off taking the standard deduction. But like considering those changes and, and how that affects how we file, what are the best ways for us to optimize our taxes uh, in this kind of new-ish day and age?
2: Well, it's getting harder to plan accordingly because, one, we, we do know that the, the personal or the individual tax changes – uh, were temporary. However, if anybody believes they're going to be unchanged between now and 2025, I also have some land i like to sell them in uh, Montana that's oceanfront. You know, It's just not going to happen. The thing that you can do is you can use the current tax law as it stands to make decisions. So it depends on what you're trying to do in your life. The tax code now is, or the tax rates are low. When I was at Camp Accountant and I was talking to people, I, I posed the question, I said, which direction are taxes going to go in the future? And, and and everybody kind of looked at me hoping I'd give the answer. And the answer is they're going up. And I preface that by saying, just because I say taxes are going up doesn't mean I want them to. I'm telling you what they're going to do. <laughs> and here's exactly. what the answer to that is. And when you've had a great economy for the longest expansion in US history, and we're running a deficit which is 4.8% of, of GDP, you have to ask yourself, That is insane for one thing. One in every $20 in the economy in the last 12 months was federal government spending put on their credit card with your name because, hey, we're gonna pay for it eventually. The answer is is that we have to prepare for that. If you can accelerate income, I'd rather pay tax at today's rates than what they're gonna be in 10 years or five years. I would rather find things that I could invest that will give me some tax-free money anyway. So for example, real estate, you can have things like cost segregation studies, which I I preach a lot because a lot more people could benefit from them than use them. You could also do things like uh, opportunity funds. So if you sell real estate, I don't think that a like-kind exchange is the first shoot from the hip response. You might wish to pay taxes at today's rates for a long-term long term capital gain rate. So for example, somebody comes in and they say, well, I'm I'm partially retired. I make 30 grand a year. I sold my rental property and we sold it. We made a $50,000 long-term capital gain. Why would you want to do a like-kind exchange? Pushing that into the future where it would be significantly higher would seem rather foolish to me. The answers are not always clear. So you have to have that conversation with a qualified and experienced tax pro and they can help you make a good decision based upon future facts that we don't necessarily have a clear crystal ball on. Even if you don't have that person do your taxes. So I consult Mm -hmm. with people and most of my consulting clients, I just don't have time to do the tax return. So you don't have to be their client for anything other than consulting. And I have clients that come back two, three times a year just for consulting and I don't do their taxes.
1: Yeah, well, Keith, let's let's talk about actually like doing your taxes, right? Like you have a list on your site of some of the different things that you recommend. It's a pretty short list as well. And one of the things you have on there, one of your recommendations, is to take the DIY approach when it comes to doing your taxes. So my question then is, is who should be actually doing their own taxes, and what do you think they need to know before getting started? You know, are there some resources out there for them?
2: For for a lot of people, their tax return is so simple. You you don't need a tax preparer that is you know, a professional tax preparer, nor do you need consulting. I mean, you got a couple W-2s in your rent. you know What's to talk about? Here's some items that would come up that I would want to have a tax preparer. If you have a small business today of any size, the Qualified Business Income Deduction, QBID, is about the most horrendous and complex tax law. Uh, provision eleven oh eleven in the the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, one hundred ninety nine A. It's the insertion of one hundred ninety nine A into the into the tax code is about two hundred and fifty words. The most complex, you know we've we've had several five hundred page regulations listed. From the IRS, and they still aren't done. That's how complex this 250 words is. It's just that insane, and I know that a lot of this will be ending ending up in tax court, so the courts can litigate it for us. Wonderful news is if they don't if they if they don't do anything in 2025, we go back to 17 uh, tax laws. So it's really kind of insane if we if we don't make some of this permanent. <clears throat> but if you're dealing with an opportunity fund, the year that that happens, you certainly would like to have an accountant. If you have a business that has or rental real estate, this Cubid. if you're not a professional, I don't think you have enough time to learn it and you don't have, it's gonna be hard to have the skill sets to do that without the pro. So, and, and if you're uncomfortable with anything, you need a pro. If it's if you're comfortable doing some stuff, man, it used to be if you had rentals or a small schedule C, no big deal. But the rules today, and I'm, and I'm gonna get this wrong because I'm doing this off of memory because it's just coming up. But the rule is, is that if you do a tax return, there's certain penalties that take place like willful intent. You can be off by as much as 25% in some things before they kick in because, well, you, you know, it, it's it's easy to maybe miss something. And the IRS gets it. If you take Qubit on your tax return, this qualified business income deduction, at any level, that moves to 5%. That basically means every tax return, and, and by the way, every tax return except for the simplest of returns, have 5% errors. And what I mean by that is, you could have a a, a small misunderstanding of what you put on your return because there's small mistakes that happen even with professionals. And that would then open that entire return up to significantly larger penalties. That means that you not only want an an accountant but you better hope that the the guy or, or woman doing those taxes has got the experience so that they understand this stuff and has the continuing education.
0: Well, that, that presents this next question, Keith. So for someone who does feel more comfortable or is in one of those situations where they do have rental real estate or they have a small business and they do need to hire someone to help them with tax prep and filing, like how would you recommend folks go about finding someone that is qualified and is going to do a great job for them and, and help them uh, find these areas that they can save on their taxes and, and ways to file that are going to be best for their situation? Like, How do they go about finding that right person to help them?
2: A good way to do this in your local community is talk to the people that are doing what you're doing. So let's say you have a small Uh, business. You probably talk with other small business owners, ask them who they're using. If you have rental real estate, these income properties, go to an apartment association, maybe talk to them. And don't just talk the one vet them. You're hiring them just like if you were hiring an employee. Keep in mind, they're not the $500 or $700 or $800 dollar fee you pay them. They're playing with your entire income for a year. So if you're making hundred grand, you better trust this individual to be playing and reconciling basically your account for tax purposes of the entire $100,000. Penalties can be quite significant. And even if they do it wrong and you overpay your taxes, so there's so in an audit you wouldn't get hurt, the odds are you don't get audited, so you're getting hurt and don't even know it. So, you want a, an experienced, qualified professional and you also want to have compatibility. I've had a few clients over 30 plus years of doing taxes where there's just some people that sometimes we even shook hands politely and walked the other way and just saying, hmm. I don't know what it is about you, but I just, we, we just don't see eye to eye, and I just, it, you, you, the hair in my back of my neck goes up <laughs> when I see you, and, 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 bo- and both of us usually feel it. It's just, it's just not working, hmm. so we just move on. Make sure there's that compatibility because you're going to be, you're going to be talking to this individual about personal things. The first thing they're going to ask is name, address, social security number. Are you married? Do you have kids? Do you gamble? Did you do this? Did you do that?
1: Well, Keith, well, on that note, I mean, are there some specific things to look out for, right? So say you are like, you you know, you've heard about this guy, you've heard about this, this lady around the corner that also does a lot of tax returns for folks who, you know, say have a small business, right? Are there like certain red flags that we should look out for that'll sort of give us a warning, you know, that gives us
2: that heads up? If they do not give you a copy of your return, if they start pushing things like these refund anticipation loans. I, I, I would hope that they would be they they would either have letters after their name or they would be, you know, the IRS has these registrations now. So at least there's some kind of uh assurance that there was some kind of uh background with it. If you're committing financial crimes, you're not gonna stay an enrolled agent, which is what I am, or a CPA for very long. But part of it is sometimes you can just feel it. If they're trying to do things that seem really out there, if they promise you a refund, I would just walk the other way. For one thing, Treasury Treasury Circular 230 says that's an illegal act, and and everybody now, not just enrolled agents and CPAs, are governed by 230. You cannot go out there and guarantee refunds. You also, the refund, your fee should not be based upon the refund. And every accountant that has... Any qualification whatsoever ever whether they're whether they're licensed or not because there's some unlicensed people that are incredibly good as well so if they do not have an engagement letter mine in my office is getting longer and a little more extensive but I clearly outline what i'm charging you what I'm doing for you what you can expect and to hire me, you sign in advance, because you sign the engagement letter saying I'm hiring you to handle this year's taxes. So they can do it out of the house, and they can be professional. It's really kind of hard. Now, be careful, I mean, there's there's the there's the dirty dozen on the uh, IRS website. You wanna, might want to read some of that, because they'll talk about some preparers that do some squirrely things. They should have security in place, so that's one of your questions when you vet this potential accountant. And you say, okay, what kind of security do you have in place? Well, we have firewalls here, we have an IT company that backs up third-party offsite, 24 hours uh, of monitoring. We have uh, a, a litany of resources that we expend in my company to protect client data. And the reason why is because accountants are prime targets. The guys doing it out of the house may not have those security measures, so if they're good, that's okay, But if they have a computer that's not a business computer and they're, you know, the kids are using it to play games and doing all these crazy things and getting some of these, uh, what do you call these apps and these games that have uh, malware in them, you could find your data being subjected to being breached. Hmm. Uh, The IRS is getting tough on that with these guys as well too, but man, I mean, first you got to be a victim. So I would rather you not be a victim. You usually can feel it and make sure they act professionally.
1: Got it. Yeah, those
0: are some good thoughts. Well, Keith, this has been a great conversation, man. I think you've yeah given some great advice to help folks uh, in, in file their individual or familial tax returns or their business tax returns, and just great to hear your story, man. So, hey, how can our listeners find out more about you?
2: The Wealthy Accountant blog is weekly, or sometimes a couple times a week. I put out some uh, ideas on taxes. I'll talk about personal finance. I'll talk about just living a good life. What you know? What 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 is what is the meaning of having a good life?
1: Well, Keith, thanks so much, man. We really appreciate you coming on and talking to us about tax law. There's just so much to consider, and uh, hopefully our listeners were able to, to glean some of that knowledge, and hopefully they're not screwing up their taxes. So thanks to, thanks again.
2: Well, it was a great pleasure, Joel and Matt, to, to be here, and uh, have a great holiday season.
0: Thanks, Keith. Matt, that was an interesting conversation, and I got to tell you, talking to Keith, it just makes me realize how complicated our tax system is. Yeah, and yeah, there's so much
1: about taxes that I do not know.
0: <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, me too. And I mean, even for someone like him who's constantly taking classes and stuff, I mean, there's so much to know. So it is nice to know that there are people out there that have expertise. So that brings me to my big takeaway. I'll let you share yours in just a second. But my big takeaway from this episode yours, yeah. was basically that if, if it's simple, if you have a simple return, if you don't have much complicated going on, well, filing your own taxes is just the best way to go. And if it's not, well, vet an enrolled agent or a CPA who does tax to find someone that you feel comfortable with and that can handle uh, your specific situation that requires kind of personalized attention from someone who knows what they're doing. And I wanted to say too, when it comes to filing taxes on your own, where there, there are a few places to go, uh, free places where you can file your taxes and it doesn't cost any money. So a couple of those are Credit Karma, TurboTax has a free file product, and then IRS Free File, uh, irs.gov, has a list of companies that will let you free file your taxes. Uh, there's a income level that you have to qualify for in order to to file under IRS free file. But those are kind of great places to go if you do have like a less complicated, pretty
1: simple return. Shouldn't take you long. Do it for free. Make it snappy. Get it done. Nice, dude. Yeah, I like that. That's a good reminder that if your taxes aren't that complicated. You don't have to make it complicated i mean that was the whole point of the standard deduction and and having you know the new form literally just being on that one postcard size return so yeah that's a great reminder My big takeaway has to do with the side hustle, right? We talked about that earlier on. And it was good to hear that if you have a side hustle, that it is probably going to be more beneficial for you to treat that like a hobby and less like a business when it comes to your taxes specifically. You know, if you're making a a few thousand dollars, right? Like maybe five grand on the side with a specific, you know, what you call a side gig or, or a side hustle, You don't need to overcomplicate things uh, by incorporating your business. He mentioned not letting the cart get in front of the horse. I think that's a great way to visualize it. Let the business, let the horse pull the cart, right? And, and the, with the cart being the, the structure and, and sort of all the formalities that you need to go through when it comes to making sure that you're, you're doing things properly. But you know what? If you're not earning that much money, keep things simple and you can completely avoid that self-employment tax and save yourself from sending the government that additional money.
0: Yeah. All right. So I had one final takeaway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize there was that much money to be made in candle making. So I, <laughs> that, that might be my next side hobby. Dude, I would love to see
1: what a $1,000 candle looks like, <laughs> right? It's got to be amazing. Is it huge? Is it just beautiful? I think like, it's I don't huge know. and ornate. Okay. Right? <laughs> All right. I would hope so. Yeah. I'm like,
0: whoa, candles. He, I think he mentioned multi, multi-thousand multi dollar candles. So I feel like I have to look into like ornate candle making because that's just something that's never been on my radar before. Yeah. You got to look into that new hobby. <laughs> All right, man. I want to also get your thoughts on the beer that we had on the show today. Today, we drank Wild Leap Alpha Abstraction Volume 9. And this is kind of in their series of IPAs, right? They're doing these interesting juicy style IPAs. What did you think of this one?
1: Yeah. Juicy all the way man this is this drink like a like a fruit juice beer (laughs) to me there is there's some hot flavors going on but there was not a whole lot of that hot bite that we've come to expect from more hazy ipas but because of that that did make this beer really easy to drink and uh yeah i really enjoyed sharing this one with you dude yeah man juicy all the way i agree super tasty another good one from wild leap there yeah yeah. we actually had one of their regular ipas i guess a few weeks back now uh yeah chance ipa so this is sort of like the you know, the big brother to chance. Yes, yeah, So they're making great beers. Glad we got to have this one on the
0: show today, buddy. That's going to do it for this episode. For links to some of the things that Keith mentioned on the show today, some of those IRS forms and some of the places where you can fire taxes. Well, just go to howtomoney.com and you can find our show notes there. That's right,
1: buddy. So that's going to be it for this episode, dude. Until next time. Best friends out. Best friends out.
2: Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Whether you are a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Zumo Play.